Hey there, this is Sean McMahon. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast and thanks for supporting the ministry by lending your ears, your minds, hearts, all that good stuff. Don't be afraid to share this here message with a friend or a family member, even a stranger. Have at. It's not like it's going to bite. These messages are recorded live at the Community Baptist Church of Gayhead and Aquina on Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, and the good old U.S. of A. If you're ever in town for a visit or suddenly find yourself shipwrecked on the southwest side of our lovely little island, climb up the clay cliffs and come on down to our little old chapel for our weekly 10 a.m. service. No need to wear anything special, just bring your special self. May God bless you. verses 5 through 8 and verse 13. Then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you authority over all these kingdoms and all their glory, he said. For it has been relinquished to me, and I can give it to anyone I wish. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. But Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And when the devil had finished every temptation, temptation, he left him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the first temptation we talked about, um, the devil said, Jesus, turn these stones into bread if you're the Son of God. And and Jesus said, no way. And then we talked a little bit about Jesus' fast and why he was fasting and what he was hoping to accomplish. And then last week we talked about the second temptation where, where the devil takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, you know, in the sight of all the people, in the center of the city. And he says, listen, if you're the Son of God, the Bible says that angels will save you because you're precious to God. So you can prove to everybody that you're the Son of God right now and get all the followers you need if you just jump off the top of uh, the temple. And Jesus says, no way. Don't tempt me and don't tempt, the God. Don't tempt God. Right? And then we talked about what temptation is and you know what what the Bible says about our relationship with that, how to overcome it. And the moral to each story was love, right? That's, that's kind of where we always end up here. So today, because we've already looked at the temptations themselves, we've already looked at fasting, we're going to look at something a little different. So I want to point out that part of why we have it, Luke 5 to 8, comma, skipping to 13, instead of just a smooth narrative here, is because, interestingly enough, in, in Matthew, in the same account of what we just read, this temptation that we just read about, it's number two of three, okay? Um, and there's also, uh, excuse me, in, in Matthew it's three, but in Luke, which we just read, it's two. That's why we had to skip around a little bit. And... 
there's another thing that's different about Luke's account, which we just read, that's different from Matthew and Mark's accounts of the temptation. So, whereas Matthew and Mark tell us at the end of this account that, okay, Jesus was tempted, he did okay, at the end, angels come and minister to Jesus. That's how they end it. But Luke tells us this, this detail, that the devil leaves Jesus until an opportune time. So people sometimes will say, you know, the Gospels are all over the place, and they all have different, different narratives, and they're all discordant and all that. And it's, it's an old problem, and all the church fathers said, nah, really what's going on, and I'm going to paraphrase them, is that Jesus' ministry was like a sports game, and all the evangelists were like sports commentators. And, and sometimes they'll all stand up and cheer for the same thing, because they all saw it. But sometimes, one guy will catch one little thing, and he'll call for an instant replay. And that's why that one guy will put something into his gospel that no one else did. and say, no, this was important. I think, I think everyone missed this, right? And then everyone else, you know, in the church gets to benefit from his, his observation, right? So these, these little differences in, in the account of the temptations, even though it seems to be like this one detail that only Luke gives, it's actually very important for, for the big picture, of God's story for all of us people. And, and similarly, when we're looking at these tales of temptation, and, and when we're talking about the devil, the devil, uh, we want to be really careful about how we talk about the devil. Because we don't want to mislead anyone about the finished work of Christ. Right? Because we're all gathered here for hope and to partake of this finished work. But here we are on Sunday talking about the devil and you know him, him saying, I'm the ruler of this world that you're in, right? But what is the finished work of Christ? First John says that Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. He talked about it like it was past tense. And first John was written, you know, years after this gospel in about the 60s AD, right? So... Let's put our minds in the right place about this. The finished work of Christ. We're going to look at the special clues that the evangelist gave in this story and in others that are connected to it to remind us that the work of Christ is finished. The devil has been defeated, right? By the power of God. The power of God that we want working in our lives. And God did this by working through his son. And, and we're going to talk about three particular victories. We're going to have a little mini Bible study right now. So we can get to the moral of the story. Three victories. One in the desert, one in Judea, and one at Calvary at the crucifixion. You're all ready? Okay. So let's talk about the victory in the desert. All right. It's, it's implied in this story, but we see proof of it later. So you remember the story when... Jesus is casting out demons and some of the religious authorities come in to say, you're doing this by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, do you really think Satan is going to turn against himself? That Satan is going to allow me to drive his minions out of his possessions? No way. And he says, but if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, 
then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Only then can he plunder his house. That's from Matthew 12. So Jesus says these these really clever, inspired things that are double-edged swords, right? The Spirit of God is a double-edged sword. And this has a double meaning to the people he's talking to. Because on the one hand, if the house that he's talking about is the house of Israel, then Jesus has said that the devil has taken possession of everything in it because he's tied up the strong man. And he's saying that you guys left yourselves vulnerable and that you've been taken over. And that would be an indictment against the religious leaders, right? But even more powerful is, is the, the more obvious meaning that, that we take and what Jesus kind of meant centrally. Because he said, like, if you accept that, then that doesn't look good for you. But what's even worse for you is, is this, which is if the strong man is Satan, then that means that the entire house of Judea is the house of Satan. And Jesus is the one coming in, tying up the strong man. And that's what he's saying. He's saying all these demon-possessed people are possessed by Satan because the house is owned by Satan. I'm the one coming in, tying him up and plundering his possessions for my own to establish my kingdom. How could he have done that unless he had bound up the strong man? So that's kind of what we're seeing. We're seeing that he did this in the desert. And I love bringing this up because some people find it really controversial, but people argue, is this the same scene that's depicted in the book of Revelation where it says that Satan is bound up? It says, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, first of all, right at the beginning of Revelation, there's only one guy who has the keys to the abyss, and that's Jesus. He says it. He introduces himself that way. He says, I am the one with the keys to death and the abyss. And the other important thing to remember at the beginning of Revelation is that it wasn't just about the future. You know, people will say the apocalypse is coming. You know, it's the end of the world in the future. But right at the top of that book, John says, or sorry, John is told, you got to write down the things that you have seen, the things that are, and the things that will be. So, John is also talking about things that have already happened, that he's already seen. And I think people might forget that sometimes about Revelation. So, a lot of what John saw was the heavenly vision of things that he saw in an earthly way. And the scene described in Revelation does in fact describe what Christ accomplished in the desert since the rest of Scripture and all of Christian history testify that Christ and his followers have that power to cast out demons and, and, and to, heal, to heal the sick. They couldn't have done that without having first bound that devil bound that enemy so this moment in revelation if it describes something in our future that would imply that satan was not bound that would imply that all this teaching is false but right from the beginning of jesus's ministry he comes out of that desert fighting and he he has this power he has this authority and he says it right then and there 
I got it because I bound Satan. I did it. That's done. So throughout all the ages of the church, um, the finished work of Christ is being preached. This is just one aspect of this finished work. There's, it, it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. The next, the next stage is fascinating, too. So we talked about the victory in the desert that gave him the authority to do these things. The next victory is the victory in Judea. All right? The binding of Satan came first. Now we're going to see Satan is cast down to the world. This is nutty stuff. So, y'all ever heard of Paradise Lost? John Milton? So, we see the devil is cast down, you know, cast down from heaven in there. And uh, he calls the devil Lucifer. And it takes, that story takes from a lot of stuff in the Bible. Um, but the name Lucifer only happens once. It's, it happens in Isaiah 14, 12. And it says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, Lucifer. You've been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. So, that informs some of our imagery that we've inherited about the fall of Satan from heaven. Um, but those words, actually, those particular words aren't about the devil. Um, if you just go back a few verses in the Bible, it'll tell you that these words are from a song of contempt that the children of Israel are to sing to the king of Babylon. And, and this is a song that you're going to sing when you're delivered from captivity that hasn't even come upon you yet. And that captivity came hundreds of years before Christ even happened. So that one's ruled out, right, for casting out of Satan. But in two places, we actually do see the devil cast out of heaven. And we see it in Revelation 12, and we see it in Luke 10, in the Gospel. And in Revelation 12, John sees a dragon hurled to earth. In Luke 10, Jesus sees Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And they're talking about the same thing, and we're going to figure out how we understand this. You following me so far? We're doing a Bible study right now. So, in Revelation... John sees this vision in heaven, right? In heaven. He's not seeing it anywhere else. He's seeing it in heaven. He says, I saw a woman giving birth to a child that will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And this dragon comes in, swoops in to devour it. But the, the devil fails and there's war in heaven. And Michael and his angels hurled the dragon down to earth. So the first question is, who is the woman and who is the child? Huh? Mary and Jesus. Right? It's Mary and Jesus, those very solid symbols, right? And that's probably the, the symbol that was intended. And what could the symbol refer to? Right? Now, here's, here's how we know. Um, if we go to St. Paul, he talks of a woman in heaven also. And he calls her the Jerusalem that is above. He says, the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Our mother. And he's talking about us, the church. The Jerusalem that is above. So the heavenly Jerusalem 
is the woman in heaven, okay? And the church is her child. So both St. Paul and Revelation are referring actually to a prophecy in Isaiah 66. This is, this is why I always say scripture interprets scripture. You're going to zigzag and find cross-references. Isaiah 66, he says, Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before she was in pain, she delivered a boy. Who's heard anything like this? Who's seen such things? Can a country be born in a day or a nation delivered in an instant? Yet, as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her child. Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Same image. He saw the same thing. Isaiah saw the same thing that John saw hundreds of years later. So, this is what Revelation is describing, the birth of the church. And immediately, the, the dragon tries to get it, right? but he can't. And, and a war erupts in heaven, led by Michael and his angels. And I'm going to just give you the punchline right here. Michael and his angels are symbols for Jesus and his disciples. Does that sound crazy? Let's look into it. So, first of all, Michael, Michael, it means... The one who is like God. Can you say that anyone is like God? There is only one person who is like God. That's the Son. Only the Son is the image of the Father. And elsewhere in Scripture, Jude writes that the archangel Michael tells Satan, the Lord rebuke you. And he's referring to something that Zechariah talked about, in which Zechariah says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. You cross-reference it, you realize that Michael is being equated to the Lord here, just like his name equates him to the Lord, right? So this is just one of many examples of, of a Christophany. That means an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament before Jesus came. Um, he, he appears in the form of an angel that's sometimes called the angel of the Lord, the angel of the presence, the angel who has the name of God in him, and in this case, the angel who is like God, Michael. And it's not that the Son of God is an angel, right? Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is a man. And the Son is preexistent. He wasn't created. But when he was seen by people who didn't know what the Son was, who didn't understand what they were seeing, they called him an angel, right? And that's because angel means messenger, a messenger of the Lord. It means messenger, malach. Malch, that's the Hebrew word. So, having identified Michael as Christ, who are these angels with him? Well, we know that it means messenger. Messenger. And Luke 9 tells us that Jesus sent his messengers ahead of him from town to town, right, to announce that the kingdom was coming and that the king was coming. So, in Luke 10, after appointing his 12, he appoints 70 of these messengers. And they go before him into every town. And say, the Lord of the harvest is coming. Prepare, you know. And they were his laborers. And he gives them the same authority he has to work miracles. Right? This, this power he got by binding Satan, he gives to 70 other individuals. And when they return from this mission, they say, hey, this is awesome. Even demons are submitting to us in your name. And what does Jesus say? Do you remember my... <laughs> good job. <laughs> he, he says, great job. 
And he said, I was watching, and I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan was cast down from heaven to earth during the ministry of Christ. He had bound him first, and then he empowered his disciples, his church. His church was born, right? The church was born. And then Jesus sends his messengers, just like like the woman gives birth to the child. And then Michael and his messengers go to war with Satan and hurl him down to earth. That's what happened in Luke. That's what happened in the ministry of Jesus. But they weren't done yet. All right, there's one more victory. Are you as jazzed about this Bible study as I am? This is so nuts. So these messengers were told, listen, go into all the towns of Judea, but don't go into Samaria. Don't leave Judea. You know, don't, don't leave this particular region. We're going to the Jews first, right? The Samarians were, were, um, were what we would call Israelites, but they weren't Jews, right? That's a different different story for a different time so there's one more victory to be had and the time had not yet come for that victory Um, and guess who's waiting for an opportune time to strike y'all remember Satan. Satan right he's waiting for this time so that brings us to the victory of Calvary where Satan is thrown into the abyss all right so when Jesus enters Jerusalem in the final year of his ministry, Palm Sunday, everyone says, here's the king of Israel we've been waiting for. Here's the king. Big old, big old Jesus rally, right? And the Greeks and Gentiles come to worship him, right? And Jesus had said, nope, nope, we're not going to preach to anyone but Jews yet. Time's not come yet. So now... The Gentiles are beginning to turn to Jesus too. And this is a clue about what's coming next for his next stage of victory. And Jesus says what's about to come next. Even though he's being greeted like a king, even though this is like the moment he's like, I'm totally going to win the election, you know? <laughs> uh, he, he, says, he says, now my soul is troubled. He gets all downcast. And he says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. But for this person, this is the purpose I have come. For this hour. This hour. He knew that this hour was going to be the hour of his passion. The hour of his suffering. It started with this glorious reception in Jerusalem. This hour. So, Mike, do you remember what Jesus said when that big crowd showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane? What he said when uh, he was arrested? Do you remember what he said about this hour? Yeah, uh, this hour was, was foreseen and ordained. You can't stop it. And uh, there's no point there, Peter, in cutting the guy's ear off because I'm going to put it back. And do you remember why he said, he said that the hour belongs to someone? Belongs to the devil. Belongs to the devil. This hour belongs to the power of darkness. This hour. And and Luke and John both record that this this time is the time of of, of the devil. And and they say that just when Jesus gets into Jerusalem, at this very moment, that's when Satan strikes again. 
it says, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. They both say this. Luke and John both record this. How they saw this, I don't know. It said, Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, and Judas went to discuss with the chief priests and temple officers how they might betray Jesus. And they were delighted and agreed to give him money, and then they began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. But little did the devil know when he entered into Jesus for this opportunity, entered into Judas, excuse me, for this opportune time. Little did the devil know this was the moment he was destroying himself. Uh, at the very time that the devil was entering into Judas, Jesus declares to the people of Jerusalem, he says, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the prince of this world will be cast out. And when I am lifted up to the world, I will draw everyone to myself. So the devil is like, I'm about to win the election. And Jesus is like, nah, I'm about to throw you out. That's pretty, uh, pretty amazing timing, I'd say. At the very time that the devil's making his strike, Jesus is like, nah, it's a trap. It's a trap. And this, this is the very moment the plot to kill Jesus begins, which we know that's what God wanted. He was like, come at me. You know, and and you got to catch the power of this. At the victory in the desert, Christ binds Satan. At the victory in Judea, with the, with the messengers being sent out, Christ casts him down to the world. And now Jesus declares, at the victory of the cross, I'm going to cast the devil out of this world. And that's the fulfillment of this second part of Revelation 20, where it says that after Satan is bound, he's thrown into the abyss. Revelation 20 also places this triumph at the time of the first resurrection. And lo and behold, this is also another controversial thing. What is this first resurrection? Only Matthew describes this. Only he talks about this. Matthew 27, 52. The tombs broke open, and the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus was raised from the dead, and hundreds of other saints came with him. That's the only time we really see it. But it's described in other ways elsewhere. This is how you know it's legit if other parts of the Bible talk about it. The ancient church tradition has always held that these saints were released from the abyss during the time between his death and resurrection. They call this the harrowing of hell and Zechariah foretold it. He said, you meaning the Messiah, by the blood of your testament have sent forth the prisoners out of the abyss. By the blood of your testament you've sent forth the prisoners out of the abyss. And Peter later writes, Christ preached to the spirits in prison. Ephesians writes how after he does this, he leads the captives out. Leads the captives out. And not only did Christ lead the captives out, but he locked Satan in. Uh, an early writer of the church named Nicodemus puts it really nicely and, and succinct. He says, The king of glory seized the chief ruler Satan by the head, delivered him to, this, to his angels, and said, With iron chains bind his hands and his feet and his neck and his mouth. Then he delivered him to the abyss and drew Adam to his glory. So he gets, Jesus gets killed on the cross. 
drag Satan down with him, right? That's why you sometimes see a snake nailed to the cross. That's what that symbol means. And he locks Satan into the abyss and takes all these old saints out. He takes out Adam and Eve. He takes out, you know, it says all, all the old fathers, you know, that you'd ever wanted about. So it's not just the Bible, but even these, these, uh, these early church fathers that are writing about this too. Um, the final victory over the devil, right? So that's our Bible study, okay? That's our Bible study. So who cares? <laughs> like very interesting. How does it how does it make a difference in your life, right? How does it matter to us? So, first of all, it matters because your faith is bulletproof, right? Bulletproof. The enemy is now under the authority of Jesus Christ completely, completely. In three and a half years, just three and a half years, Jesus bound him, hurled him down to the world, then hurled him into hell, locked him up. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Right? Second, have confidence in the finished work of Christ. And when people are asking about what your faith is, make sure you preach it that way too. Right? There's this old saying that at church you hear more about the devil than you do about Jesus. And I know we talked a lot about the devil today, but I hope you understand that we're talking more about Jesus. You know, uh, you know you, 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 you'll hear the devil wants you to do this. You know, the enemy wants you to do that. All these ways the devil's after you. What does God want you to do? How does Jesus want you to be? How has he liberated you to live your life? When the devil is not our problem, Jesus made the devil his own problem. When he did enough, he solved that problem already. He took care of us so we, we could live in the glorious freedom of the children of God. We were, we were born at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this church, right? And this freedom is to the end that we spread wide the net of the kingdom of God that was born. You know, when that, when that woman gave birth to us in heaven... We're going to spread wide the net of the kingdom of God as fishes of men, ministering reconciliation, not fear about the devil, but reconciliation and love of God and Christ's love to everyone we meet. That's what our freedom is for. And we have the promise that before God, we have no accuser, no enemy any longer. God gave us his son so that all the enemies of his people would be put underfoot. If God is for us, who can be against us? All right, this is the meaning of what Isaiah foretold, that there would be no end to the increase of God's kingdom. There's no one who can stand against us any longer. And by the way, what's the law of the kingdom? One word? Love. Right? Love never fails. No one can stand against us any longer. They can, and they can try, and they will, 
but they won't prevail if God is for us. Our love will prevail, the love that God has given us. And all things God will make a way. God in Christ has lifted every curse. There is no more wrath. And we are free again to live by his very first command. You understand that? Back to Eden, back to paradise. The very first command was be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion. This be spiritually fruitful. You know, the fruits of the Spirit, love, multiply, share the love, have dominion with the law of the kingdom, which is love. That's the answer to everything. This applies to every aspect of your life, your bodily health, your mental health, your job, your finances. God is happy to give you his heavenly kingdom, so why would he not give you all this stuff, right? He knows your needs better than you do, so seek this kingdom first and the righteousness thereof, and all these things will be added unto you. Right? Heard that before? And this is the kingdom we're preaching. This kingdom of love. That's, that's what this kingdom is. Heavenly kingdom. It's a light yoke. Right? Love. Not too harsh. We don't preach a burden of the Lord. We don't preach prophecies of doom and gloom and God's punishment and the triumph of the devil. The burden of the Lord you shall mention no more is what Jeremiah prophesies because the prophecy, the head of prophecy was cut off with the head of John the Baptist 2,000 years ago. This, when Jesus says the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, one of these last doom and gloom prophets, right? We don't go around making false prophecies saying God is hiding his face from us as if there's some accuser that has power over God and influence over God. We don't say he's turning away because the devil is doing such and such in the nation or through such and such king as if God hasn't already trampled on on the devil. But Jesus says that type of prophecy ended with John the Baptist. Now in the kingdom of God, the spirit of prophecy is Christ, right? Y'all heard that? Spirit of prophecy is Christ. So we preach Christ crucified, the finished work of Christ. Love, the freedom of love. And this is what it means. This prophecy that foretold Jesus, the days of Jesus. This is what it means when it said, no longer will each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. The people following Jesus said, Oh my God, this is fulfilled in our day. What do you mean they'll no longer teach their neighbor to know God, that they'll already know him? Well, because our accuser is cast down. So even when we're in sin, even when we're imperfect, we can turn to our perfect God in repentance and know him fully as he knows us. He hasn't hidden himself from us as he did in the, in the days of old. The Bible always said the people were disobedient, so God hid himself from them. He doesn't hide himself. He's been revealed. He who has seen the Son has seen the Father. He can't hide anymore. Right? That's what it means. Every man shall know God. This is why Paul was so eager to leave behind elementary teachings about Christ, like repentance, baptism, things that deal with our sin. He's saying, this is, this is the starting point. You know, the, the defeat 
of, of Satan by Christ. Right? Like, like John said, he said, Christ appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's just the beginning. That's the elementary teachings. Paul wants to go on to maturity. So we don't have to repeat these, these messages about sin and, and the devil over and over as if God hasn't solved the problem. He solved it. That's the finished work of Christ. So let's go on to maturity like Paul wants. The, the finished work of Christ is our foundation. It's the foundation of our faith. And it's the foundation of our individual lives. And, and for his kingdom, in, we, in which we're both subjects and a royal priesthood. Right? So as for the nations of the world, they're going to walk in the victories of their own fathers, right? America's patriots walk in the victories of the founding fathers. But as for us, the victory in which we walk is the victory of Christ. Right? And while, while all other nations have come and gone and they're going to keep coming and going, we have this promise that this nation that was born in a day of that woman in heaven, this is going to increase forever. Right? Of the increase of his government shall know no end. God has blessed us in this kingdom of God to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion. So, us arise, you know, arise y'all and go forth and have confidence in this finished work of Christ. And as Christ arose from his temptations in the desert, and as he arose from his defeat of Satan in Judea with his messengers, and as Christ arose from the dead, let's arise with him and let's walk in these victories which he's accomplished for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sean McMahon Podcast. Visit SeanSellickMcMahon.com for more information about his ministry. For more about Sean's music, please visit WorkmanSong.com.